HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. Balls and sticks. You'll soon hear this idiom over and over in this episode, as if we're talking in circles. Two shapes whose repetitive figures have been a constant in bread's identity over time. Affected by environment, manipulated by humankind... Of all the chaos theory in the world, we really only yield two shapes, balls and sticks. I'm not ceding to the fact that there aren't more shapes like rhombi and squares, but in the long and short of it, balls and sticks are predictable. A self-fulfilling prophecy. It's semantical to think otherwise, or is it? Can bread exist outside the proverbial bread box? When we started organizing this episode, we separated it into two categories, raw and cooked. I immediately thought of my favorite semiotician, Claude Levi-Strauss, who wrote that cooking, like language, is a truly universal form of human activity. If there is no society without a language, nor is there any which does not cook. Levi-Strauss set out to create a grammar, or a structure for how we think about cooking's role in human society, and he proposed a culinary triangle, where the three points correspond to the raw, which sits at the apex, and the two anchors are the cooked and the rotten, and those are transformations of the raw state. The cooked is a cultural transformation, and the rotted is a natural transformation. Bread occupies a nebulous place in this triangle. It is a product of nature. It's fermented, 
rotted, if you will, and at the whim of water, air, and time. But as we'll hear in this episode, it has proliferated around the world because of the shapes and patterns humans have imposed on it, markers of culture that led to its many styles and names. Once you get to shapes and scoring, you're really looking at bread semiotics. you got to remember, there's only two shapes in the world of bread. Two shapes and two shapes only. There are balls and sticks, and that's it. Tubes and spheres. There are no other shapes in the world of bread. There are no other things. Even if, even a, uh, well, I mean, unless it's extruded square, but that's, extrusion is not forming. It's not what boulangers do, because we just boule all day long. We bool until we can bool no longer. And going back to this idea of, of shapes, there are bools that are flattened, are discs, you know? When you, when you think of Pizza Bianca alla Romana, it is a traditional Roman bread. It's a traditional Roman bread dating back to, presumably dating back to Roman times. There is some hearsay, but there are like very similar breads to this bread made in Afghanistan. There are very similar breads uh, made, I think, in Persia as well. To the Pizza Bianca alla Romana in Turkey, in uh, Armenia. And, you know, these are all areas where Romans at one point conquered. And are they artifacts left behind and just... Different forms, different interpretations, sourcing wheat from different locations. And they just kind of survived independently of their own. You know, some of the products, some of these breads, for example, share common or similar names. If you look at, you know, the word bread in, in language, it's amazing in, in all the different languages. Kleba, kleb, brot, pan, you know, pao. In India, some of the breads, pao in Chinese, bao. Psomi, I like the Greek, psomi. I make psomi. It's like psychology. Accented by inflection, it's a construal of communal baking that circumscribes to these labels, the balls and sticks that Jim Leahy told us about. It's hard not to allude to, since even at its most elemental state, as yeast... Michael Gansel sees bread's dualism, again, as balls and sticks. Uh, they look like irregular balls, so they're elliptic. They're not very big, about 10 micrometers, one hundredth of a millimeter in diameter. Uh, so uh, something between uh, a football used in soccer and a football used in American football, uh, then you would get a yeast. Uh, and the lactobacilli, they're... Long rocks, long rods, and a lot, a lot smaller than the yeast. So let's start from the top of the triangle. That is, a globular piece of dough sits on your counter, ready to be molded. It is raw, unrefined. Imagine as infinite outcomes, but to get there, factors remain. Christina Peterson Magoya considers the circumstance of temperature, time, milieu, forever inconstant making the baker compliant. Well, 
I think it's understanding the dough, the timing of when to roll it, when it's cold enough, when it's not cold enough, how to ensure that the dough is resting long enough, um, when those key things aren't felt about the dough, that's what can directly impact the quality of the product at the end. So it's that understanding of those, those key factors, I guess. So it's about understanding how the dough's reacting to the environment and daily in an environment is going to change and daily how you're handling the dough is going to change. There may be variances in how long it, you know, in so many different factors that you have to really have a understanding of, I guess, the raw ingredients of the doughs of the product itself. Henry Jones has only been a baker at Butcher and Bee in Charleston, South Carolina for a few years, but he already understands that bread perfection may be unrealistic. What's pragmatic is the pursuit. I mean, I've been doing it for only a year, and I just think I evolve every day just by, you know, handling dough um, and just by shaping baguettes. I always just, I mean, it's that baker's mentality is to strive to be like just that you know, that chase of the perfect loaf. And there's so many variables to that. Um, but just shaping is something I know I can, will always need to get better on. Uh, trying to incorporate more whole grain things, like messing around. There's just so many layers to it. Um, so right now we have a pretty basic Levon. I would like to start fermenting different flowers, you know, seeing how that affects final things. And I've really just scratched the surface. Um, and just by reading, I, I feel like I've absorbed quite a bit, but there's so much more that I need to know. Yes, we need to talk about kneading. The transformation of a ragged dough into a coherent and workable construct. Emily Bueller deliberates whether it's too wet, too dry, too sticky, too tough. Oh. Oh. To labor with hesitation or find Zen in the rote motions? That is the question. I think maybe the first thing is getting your dough the right consistency and then kneading it properly. And when I'm teaching, I always tell students to err on the wet side because it's much, much easier to take a wet dough and add a little flour and make it drier. But if your dough gets too dry, you end up with this like brick of dough and it's impossible to knead and it's really hard to work more water into that. It just is kind of the, it gets all like tight and tough and it's hard to add water to. So I would say air on the wet side, but you, you really, I think a lot of people have trouble kneading because the dough is sticking and so they keep stopping and trying to clean their hands and add flour and and so I would just try to get it a good consistency to start with so that you can focus on kneading and not be kind of messing with it and poking at it. And when I say a good consistency, I would say that you want it to be soft and flexible um, but not too sticky. And so the minute you're, you're mixing your ingredients and the minute you start to feel it getting a little bit too tough, you would want to add a little more water and not, not ever let it get too tight and tough. So ideally, it's soft and flexible, and then um, I think it's 
like to me, kneading is work. I know some people find it meditative. I just think it's work. But and and I'm kind of a little lazy, so I put on music that's like fast-paced music, and I just make myself keep going for one or two songs worth of music. And I think that you just have to put effort into it. It should feel like a workout. And so I think a lot of newcomers are kind of just poking at it, and they're not really needing it, and so it doesn't get fully needed, and then it will have trouble later in the process with rising fully um, because it wasn't needed fully. It's an eternal struggle between internal and external powers, kind of like Star Wars. We don't want to get into the allegory here, but let's just say George C. Pasquale knows when to use the force. Shaping the dough is, I mean, there's obvious reasons to shape the dough. It's pretty, right? And some doughs where we're trying to really protect the inner crumb structure of the loaf, like, you know, think ciabatta, for example. We want to shape the dough very minimally. Uh, okay, so some dough, sometimes you have next to zero shaping. It's just portioning, really. And that's in order to incur, to not degas the dough, basically, to keep the bubbles large and irregular and and so that when the ovens when they spring in the oven they'll be even you know those those bubbles will increase in size a little bit more so that's if you're looking for a really large open internal crumb where the holes the alveoles are irregular and big then you want to do very minimal shaping Anytime you work the dough after the fermentation you're going to be degassing a little bit so that's always a consideration and then that said, um, the purpose of the action of shaping, I guess, is to kind of tighten the surface of the dough, the surface skin of the dough, if you will, around the loaf so that it keeps it keeps its shape. And that's that's sort of the the purpose of shaping. It's not to degas and like. Uh, force it into a shape as much as it is to stretch the dough around itself and uh, create sort of a uh, elastic skin around the dough. Ken Forkish's boule is rotund, all-encompassing with deep, developed flavors. Maybe it's true. Bigger is better? Um, you know, I don't get that asked that question often, and it's so important. I mean, ask any, any of the bakers that work for me. It takes a while to get a shaping technique that produces the kind of bread I want, whether it's a baguette um, or our country breads. Uh, and like there's a there's a traditional French technique for shaping a baguette where you kind of pound out the gas that's in it as you roll it over and then stretch it out. And uh, I prefer to preserve all the gas that's already developed into the baguette to give it the lightest areas crumb possible. Uh, so I have a little bit different technique for that. The... Um, one of the breads that's kind of a signature for my bakeries is a, a three a three kilo country bowl. Uh, so the raw dough weight is six point six pounds of dough, and we just bake it as a giant round. It's about I don't know about eighteen inches in diameter, and that's my favorite bread. And there's just something about the flavors that develop. And these are Levine breads. There's something about the flavors that develop in a really large format loaf that uh, seem to be a little bit different and to me a little bit more desirable and the flavors that develop in a smaller loaf. 
But maybe size doesn't matter, and it's more about how often you use it. It being dough, you dirty breadheads. Dan Leader of Bread Alone Bakery knows it's important to keep quality consistent with quantity. In some ways, we haven't changed a lot, other than we bake a lot more bread than we used to. Um, You know, we still shape thousands and thousands and thousands of breads by hand. We still score every loaf by hand. Um, You know, we we have some gadgets that make it a lot easier for bakers to move dough, that they're not having to pick up hundreds of pounds of dough. We have dough lifts and, and it's some chunky machines that just cut the dough into pieces easier. But other than that, it's, it, it, the core of the bakery has not changed much other than we make a lot more bread. Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, reminds us that the paradigm here lies in the uniformity of designation. Calling a boule a boule disregards a more literal definition, a further métier of classification. If we're not talking about challah and, and brioche, but we're talking about these other types of breads, those are more traditional shapes. Boule, batard, baguette. Rolls, which are really just like a small boule. Um, these, these are going to be your most common shapes. But there are the shapes that I call French regional breads or French regional shapes. And this all came to be because there is a um, association in France that's called Compagnon du Devoir, which is uh, uh, an association of bakers that own bakeries where they take apprentices. Um, and so it's basically a place where you learn, uh, you have a, a, a mentor uh, that teaches you the craft of baking, and it, it's it's almost like going to school in a bakery. And you have your final exam. I mean, the, the final exam uh, is is a number of things, but the most important thing is you have to come up with a shape. And the and this is where I, I, like when people say that there shouldn't be that there it hasn't been innovation in bread, and that there's you know there hasn't been like a lot of new things happening in bread. These things are innovation. When you look at these shapes, they were innovative, uh, and it was it was a, a definite thinking outside the box when when people came up with these shapes and um, and it, it was it was basically a different way to show the bread. It's it's it is an artistic, personal interpretation of how to shape a bread, and so um, the. The names that are given to these breads are names that are based on what they're supposed to look like. What makes a classic a classic? What was once innovation is now normalized. So what's a stereotypical bread? So far, other than a baguette and a croissant, but that's more viennoiserie, the only other bread emoji is a Pullman loaf, criterion of our current visual language. But there's a bunch of other size pans. I mean, there's there's your classic Pullman, which is a rectangular pan uh, with a lid. I mean, that's you can choose to do that shape. I mean, when you put a lid on the dough, what your expectation is or what your goal should be is a square or, well, really a rectangular loaf of bread that's going to give you square slices. There's not going to be any doming. There's not going to be any crown on top. It's just going to be this straight-up square bread. It has its purpose. People used to use it. They would actually trim the crust off 
and make uh, finger sandwiches with them, tea sandwiches and whatnot. Uh, the, you know, the soft white crumb was what mattered. The crust didn't. And so that's why the square was such an efficient shape for this because it's an easier shape to cut out, you know, remove the crust, cut out squares, rectangles, triangles from, from the square interior. Aesthetics are territorial, carried across cultures and phonological in their portability. Cynthia Nims occasionally thinks so too. Well, in France, of course, the classic bread that you think of in France is the baguette. I don't know that it has a particular regional home in France. It's a delicious bread. It's a portable bread. That beautiful, long, slender loaf makes it easy to carry around. It's perfect for picnics. I mean, it was like it was invented for picnics. Um, And it's evocative of, like, breakfast, like a, a perfect baguette, a little nugget of butter, and a great cup of coffee to me is the absolutely perfect breakfast and a day in France is, is really not complete without interacting with the baguette at some point point. and then um, at the other end of the spectrum I guess in terms of presentation are the big boule the classic country round super rustic uh, loaves that are often um, with a you know darker wheat blend and, and just exude rusticness and nutty flavor and they're so big sometimes you get just a quarter of it, um, and it'll feed your family for a week, it seems. Um, those are beautiful um, breads, too, that are found throughout France. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the decadent, rich breads, um, brioche. Oh, my gosh. A, a fine slice of brioche toasted with a little foie gras on it, you know, and maybe a um, candy cherry or something on top. Oh, my Lord. That's, uh, you know, that's um, the elegance the ele- very elegant end on the other end of the spectrum from those bulls, but there's a bread for every occasion, which is great. There's a number of uh, French regional breads that have distinctive names to them. There's basically it's different shapes. Um, I mean, you have your classic bull, which is a just like a round, like. A really classic shape. You have a batard, which is more of an oval, oval shape. Some people like to do the oval shape with tapered ends. Some people prefer to do the uh, oblong oval, which is just like the curved ends. Um, you have a baguette shape. Uh, I mean, there's there's like the really classic, I would say, easy-ish shapes to to make that you'll see commonly in bakeries. You're you're not really going to see a, a bunch more uh, different shapes than that. So there's a threshold to the bread model, but there has to be even more minute characteristics that set a loaf apart from the rest, right? Scoring is for appearances, for sure, but George Di Pasquale explains that it's an integral part of bread baking as well. Scoring happens for two reasons. One is that as the bread uh, enters the oven, it's going to spring rapidly in the oven. So it'll increase in size in the first few minutes, like 10 to say 13, 14 minutes. Um, It'll increase in size sometimes as much as a third more uh, within the oven. So that extreme rising in the oven is stresses out the surface of the loaf quite a lot. So in in that process, the the surface will break. In a pan loaf, um, it's, it's, it's okay that the pan helps for the, it's not totally okay, but if you 
mixed right and it's got the right ingredients and all that stuff, there will either be very little break or the break will happen kind of around the edge of the at the edge of the pan and it's not that ugly. But in a in a freestanding loaf in a artisan type loaf, um, it'll break wherever it's weakest. Right now, that could be a look and that's occasionally desirable, you know, for a rustic looking loaf of bread. But um, but so one reason to score the bread is so that when the break happens, it happens where you want it to happen, and it's a pretty loaf. That's one reason. But the main reason is that it allows the it releases some of relieves some of the tension on the outer surface of the loaf of bread as it's springing rapidly in the oven, um, so that you get more volume. It gets it, it encourages the spring in the in the oven. That's the other the other reason allows for some of the gas to gas off. You know, so you have a basically more uniform uh, and well-risen loaf of bread in the oven. The balloon is better. Repeating patterns become personalized, and breads bespoke to the maker. I wouldn't go as far as calling them monogrammed, but the modernist bread team does have a bread stamp all their own. Zachary Goper is the man behind Bianquit Bakery in Brooklyn, New York. He understands the oneness of a loaf and the responsibility of a single baker. With a little may or a sharp knife, you make that pattern on the top. But a lot of those patterns were distinctions of whose bread it was because, I mean, there really was one, only one oven in, in any given town. Yes. And for people to go there with their fermented dough, you know, ready to fire it off, they had to be able to know whose it was once it came out of the oven. And still to this day that exists. Now for us, you know, we score on the top and you can easily distinguish different artisan bakeries throughout New York by the score of their breads and, of course, by the flavor. And um, if you go back to um, the, the person that probably inspired most of American artisanal baking, Leonel Paulin, his bakery functions in a very interesting way where each baker mixes their dough from from water, salt, and flour all the way to the finished loaf. Each baker is responsible for 100% of the process of that loaf or of that batch of loaves. And uh, before it goes in the oven, they score the bottom with their initials. And so the customer never really even knows it's there. But if you look, if you flip over a Poilin loaf, you'll see the initials of your customer. And this way they're able to track if there's an error or if somebody forgot the salt or something happens – they can figure out from which batch it came and to, to eliminate any of those. That's from awesome. The it's, it's like getting clothing and you see, like, inspected by number 87. Paging Agent 86. But let's get smart here. We're not all kin of baking royalty. Nevertheless, we still want to make magnificent breads. Jim Leahy may be a master baker, but his mastery grew from the agony of defeat. Or should we say deflate? Is that a too dense a bread pun? So in order to get, for example, so you have two different doughs. You have a, a all-purpose General Mills flour, and it's, and, it's, and it's fermented, and it can go down to a very relatively low pH, like let's say 4.7 or 4.6 before you shape it into a loaf of bread. It could even go lower... Um, but again, you're going to, you're going to end up changing the, 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 it's going to be, I, I think too acid when it goes below 4.4.6, 4.5. I think when dough is under 4.6, when it's shaped, it's for me, it's too acid, the end result. Um, 
I think four four point seven for me is the mm-hmm. is the sweet spot. And but if you had a dough, for example, that was regionally regionally sourced, uh, I might not allow it to go uh, get that acidic. Um, maybe I, this is maybe I'm spouting out bullshit right now. No, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to allow the dough to ferment and and be able to get a a salient result. I can't. I wouldn't be able to. I'd have to shape the bread at four point nine, say, in order to get something, or five point in order to get it into something that's like eatable, edible. Because mm-hmm. I don't like dense bread. I don't like. I don't like bread that's hard to eat. I don't like bread that causes me pain. No pun intended. Completely intended. There's no pleasure in that kind of pain. It's. You know, that sounds like S&M, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> it's like, who wants to eat bread that hurts? Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't hurt. I, I think that, like, the whole food is all about pleasure. You go out to a fancy restaurant, it's all about pleasure. The wine is pleasurable. The sound level, you know, whatever it is. The, the sights, the sounds, the smells. The second that it's not pleasurable, walk into a restaurant and it smells like someone cut a fart. You know, it it already starts off on a bad note. We don't want to turn this into a forum for fart jokes, but to start the rotten section, Jim Leahy's verbal response to bad bread is visceral. Someone should do this study of the loss of bread forms in language, let alone form, in Italy in every major urban center. Uh, even in, extends into the countryside. You know, things have simplified. You know, there aren't. You know, there's still a lot of traditional forms, but a lot of them have been lost. Uh, and the language for them as well, for especially for younger people, millenn- Italian millennials. You know, no different than American millennials. We're all, we're all millennials. Ken Forkish annotates that these days the word artisan is less about craft than it is advertising. Well, yeah, it, it meant the word artisan meant a lot more to me when I opened uh, uh, 16 years ago, uh, because it, the word is really is you know, definition of artisan is someone who has a craft, um, and usually it means using your hands in a craft. Uh, so whether you're a cabinet maker or on and on. Uh, but it means less to me now because the word artisan has just been abused by big business. And so um, it's been used wrongly. Uh, and so I think what I think it's lost uh, the part of its meaning to the general public. To me, it still means what it always has been. So one de- the definition for what makes a great loaf of bread really depends on the kind of bread it is. It's not a simple answer. It's not a one-size-fits-all. If it is, then it's industrial bread now with nothing to do with it. Uncompromisingly, the more processed the bread, the more concise the catalog. Stephen Jones notes that nomenclature is what it is, as bread should be. The argument is is we should label our breads as American bread or processed bread or something like that, if they're not truly a bread. And bread in this definition is a European-style raised loaf of bread, as we we understand it, not a chapati or a tortilla or something, but a raised bread. And we realize there are different definitions of bread, but, but the European-style raised loaf of bread has, could have a true definition, and that's, that's something that actually goes through a fermentation step and doesn't have a lot of junk added to it. So most modern bread 
that you would buy in the grocery store in a plastic wrapper goes from dry flour to sliced in that wrapper in much less than three hours, in some, in some cases two hours. The argument is that's not really bread. That's, that's a dough that's been whipped into a frenzy with a lot of conditioners and things that allow that to happen. And then it's baked, and then it's cooled, and it's sliced and cooled and put in a plastic wrapper. To us, that's not really bread. To us, bread is something that goes through a true fermentation step and doesn't have dough conditioners and things like that added to it. The way wine is wine. We also make the argument on juice. Juice has a definition. It's 100% juice. That's what juice is. If it's a cocktail or, or some juice cocktail or something like that, it has sugar and other flavors added to it. So it's the same same argument is is let's just call call these things what they are. We'll let you chew on that. And we'll be right back with more Modernist Breadcrumbs. Modernist Breadcrumbs is presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Think you know everything there is to know about gluten and baking? Gluten-free flour doesn't have elasticity on its own and typically produces a very dense product. So blends of gluten-free grain flours, starches, and gums are used to make a more versatile consistency. Plus, commercially available gluten-free flours are not all the same, Brands can produce different results, giving the recipe different tastes and textures. The more you understand, the better your results will be. To help us understand gluten-free flour, I'm joined by Camilla Salisbury, the author of Bob's Red Mill Everyday Gluten-Free Cookbook. Well, what makes something gluten-free is essentially that it doesn't have any um, of the protein gluten in it. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that uh, many grains do not contain gluten, when in fact just a very small number of grains do. So while bread flour doesn't typically contain large amounts of protein, it's very important for the baking process. When flour is mixed with water, the gluten forms a continuous network of fine strands. The network forms the structure of bread dough and makes it elastic and extensible. However, there are many ways to work around this when using gluten-free flour, and Bob's Red Mill has tons of options. Well, Bob's Red Mill really understands gluten-free options, um, and that means they separate their grains um, during the manufacturing process, and so they're testing each batch at every step of the way for purity to ensure that it's gluten-free. So when it says on the package that it's gluten-free, you can be assured that it is gluten-free. Bob's Red Mill has over 100 gluten-free products, including the wonderful gluten-free one-to-one baking flour. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their gluten-free promise, as well as pick up some delicious recipe ideas and coupon offers, visit bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believers in whole grain foods for every meal of the day. And we're cooked. From dough to bread, that is. Far from exhausted of this exhaustive subject, Nathan Mervold, founder of The Cooking Lab and co-author of Modernist Bread, sees this as a microcosm. The Big Bang of the bread world is much more than a microcosm. It's analog to the creation of the universe. (laughs) 
Well, actually, there's a pretty close uh, analogy to that. So, of course, cosmology is what I used to uh, work on many years ago. I was a postdoc with Stephen Hawking. And many theories of the uh, origin of the universe involve having a foam-like structure for space and time, where within that foam-like structure, you can have a phase change effectively. It's not – it's analogous to boiling. That phase change causes enormous expansion. Sometimes it goes by the theory of the inflationary theory of the universe. And that idea has been around for some time now. But as people started thinking about how that might happen, you could have some bubbles that expand more than others. Those bubbles would then tunnel through to, to others. Some ideas of string theory involve uh, what are called cosmic strings, which are the linear leftovers of these things breaking through to one another. So th there is a possible way in which the origin of the universe is mimicked in bread. This probably makes a lot more sense if you're high. Uh, and I got to say that it's not like all aspects of this cosmology are figured out. So there are some significant issues with all of those theories, but the properties of bubbles and bubbles with lots of expansion and how they coalesce is central to bread and it's central to cosmology. With every bite of bread, believe in the Big Bang and that there's a cosmic force behind its creation. At its core, bread is crummy with a B. The expansion of our bread universe starts from within. So crumb is the name that bakers use to describe the interior of the bread, not just little pieces that are down on the floor, but <laughs> in fact, the entire interior of the bread is called the crumb. And when you have a high hydration percentage, you get uh, a very open crumb with big bubbles in it. You get a, a, a stretchy and somewhat almost creamy quality to the, um, to the part that is <laughs> dough in the final baked bread. Can you guess how many bubbles are in a loaf of bread? It's like counting a jar of jelly beans, but in this case, maybe there's less than meets the eye. Well, so uh, the uh, I like to get people to guess how many bubbles a loaf of bread has, and depending on the size of the loaf of bread and a few other things, it's on the order of millions. Afterwards, it's one, or pretty close to one. And the reason is that uh, for bread to be baked, all the, the entire bread, including the center, winds up being at least uh, 100 degrees C or pretty close. So the steam has thoroughly gone through and any bubble that remains unburst would be a, uh, an anomaly because that bubble would have be subjected to tremendous pressure and the dough just isn't strong enough to contain uh, the, uh, the pressure from boiling the water inside. So at the end, there's only one bubble, or you could argue there's zero bubbles because somewhere that long, tortuous cave of uh, wrapped around uh, uh, broken bubbles is going to pierce to the outside of the bread. We're as conscientious about the crust as we are the crumb. So let's cut to the chase on how to respect both during the big reveal. Another thing about cutting bread, um, 
If you notice, this bread was sitting flat, so it's a, it's, it's a bull. What we're looking at is a bull. It's an 850-gram bull, um, which is the, the, that's what you call a round shape, a round loaf. Um, and the instinct to cut the bread is to just cut straight down across the surface. So this is more surface area when you're cutting it straight like this. What we like is to turn the bread over on its side, and basically it's reducing surface area, and it's also giving, I, I have to do less motion to cut it back and forth. So if I, if I lift it and I have it standing vertically on the heel, it's less of the cutting I have to do. And why does that matter? It matters because I have less crust shatter. Um, you can also up this, um, you know, efficiency in cutting and use, if you have, you know, a turkey slicer at home that you use just once a year, it works great for cutting bread. It is an awesome piece of equipment that you can use more than once a year. And so we're going to cut this. A slice of life. In Modernist Bread, the book, Nathan and his team research Roman breads called trenchers, which were more perfunctory as plateware. Bread can be utilitarian like that, as Eric Kaiser sees trenchers, maybe as the precursors to tartines. The role of bread can be cast as protagonist. Before, if you remember the story of the life, 300 years ago, we don't have plates. So the bread was the plate. So usually in every house, the girl, the lady make a big bread, a big bowl of bread and cutting the bread and after put the ingredients that they have in the firm. And, you know, we don't need to have something to clean after because we, we eat all. And this is my dream was to, uh, to be a bakery was need to be a place where you can take your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner and your tea time if you want. So I've starting 14 years ago, the tartine in our shop in Paris. And at this moment, I need to push the people to sell the tartine and to introduce to our customer. And you see now, everywhere you can find uh, tartine. So use the tartine very easily. Huh? You can put the mozzarella and tomato and ham, or you can put artichokes and chicken, or you can put beautiful ingredients, truffles. And what you want, it's, it's so good. If you just take a... a, 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 a a part of bread, a beautiful bread, and you put some oil and truffles, and truffles is just beautiful. It's a present from God, so and it's simple or expensive for a truffle, but beautiful. Wasaf Haroun is the co-owner of Memnoon, a Middle Eastern restaurant in Seattle. Wasaf was born in Syria and raised in Lebanon before moving to the United States. Here he explains the shapes of pita. When taken piece by piece, triangle by triangle, it makes for a complete meal, a shared piece of a larger, rounder whole. Francisco, you, what you need to do is take a small piece, a square piece or a triangular piece of pita, fold it over, make like a mini shovel, and then use that to, uh, to dip into the meze and uh, well, that, that's perfect. Great. And this way, your your fingers don't touch the meze. You get your fill of the of the meze, and and you get the perfect combination of bread and meze. 
pita is supposed to be shared as well. We are being very civilized in, in it. We, we can each have our own piece of pita, but uh, typically you'll have a large piece of pita, about 12 inches in diameter or so, and then uh, you, you will grab it and, and, and tear off a piece of your own from that. And that, that keeps on going until the whole group needs more pita and then more pita will be introduced. So bread ha comes with many names, and uh, Khubz is the traditional name, the, 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 the uh, rhetorical name for bread in Arabic. Uh, but in different places, uh, uh, in particular in Egypt, uh, the colloquial name is Aish, uh, which is the same name as life. And so people in Egypt use the name life for bread, and, uh, because it's that central to them. There are debates on what really constitutes certain breads in certain places, but there are few more discerning than the bagel. Boiled and baked, an inelastic crust, and inimitable chew, a veritable bagel is evident by its systematic success. So a bagel is a dense dough. It's the type of dough that where you bite into it, it, you have to chew for an extended period of time before you can actually swallow. I mean, and it's one of those, that's not a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, you know, people like to chew. It's, a, it's an enjoyable experience. Um, you were saying yesterday that a good bagel, when you chew it, you have to, your temple has to ache a little bit. I wouldn't go that far, but that's just my personal opinion. Uh, but I, I do agree on that, that sort of like dense crumb, it has to be there. I would add, that's something that I really like about a well-made bagel, is um, it's, it's basically something that we, we were working on here to achieve, which is to have a crust that is not necessarily soft. It's a crust that has a little bit of a brittleness to it, uh, followed by the chew from the crumb. And that's easier said than done, because when you have a dense spread, what it means is that it's, it's not necessarily going to have, it's not going to be crusty, necessarily. So the way we, we get to that cr crusty point is by, we shape our bagels, we let them sit overnight in refrigeration uncovered. So basically you're drying out the surface. When we boil our bagels, we initially started boiling them with uh, water and malt syrup, which is it's a, like a traditional way to do it. Um, you know, you add the malt syrup because it's gonna add a little bit of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, color to the surface. It's, it's going to brown the bagel a little bit more. It's going to make it a little bit well shiny. Well, the shininess really comes from the boiling, uh, but you get this beautiful golden brown bagel from the boiling, right? Um, and then we started thinking about, you know, the fact is that our bagels are in a chapter that we call um, bagels, pretzels, and bao. And it might seem like an odd grouping, but every type, every single type of these breads has had some sort of water treatment apply to it. There's an art in achieving these wanted attributes, an absolute mastery of craft, which only then allows for interpretation, even art. Harry P. Muller may be a professor of bakery and bread studies at Johnson & Wales in Charlotte, North Carolina, but as captain of the Bread Bakers Guild Team USA, he's a competitor too, and he thinks of bread outside the basket and even in the echelons of sculpture. Well, I, I believe actually now 
that um, the art of baking, if you make a bread sculpture, for instance, that actually uh, inspires some of the pastry. It used to be always the pastry inspiring the baker, but now I think there is, you know, some of the bread sculptures that are being built, you know, inspiring pastry chefs because it's a very humid day over here. Uh, there's no sugar sculpture for a reason because it would be crystallized over here. There's a bread sculpture. On a very warm day, the chocolate sculpture would melt over there. So I think also the creativity could be inspired by bread over here. And I'm just thinking the earthiness, the, the, the broad variety that we have in uh, bread uh, can actually inspire pastry. I'm just thinking chocolate, for instance. There's a lot of chocolate flavors, but at the end, they're pretty much the same. I'm just thinking, instead of adding cuckoo nips maybe for a, a truffle, for a chocolate, why don't we use like some toasted grains, maybe some rye. I could imagine a nice earthy rye. Maybe it has been sprouted, roasted, and then uh, maybe just milled nice and crackly. Put that on a nice dark chocolate. That would be like a flavor component that is completely unexpected. And I'm can, I could imagine there's some other flavor components as well that could be added in chocolates, maybe in, uh, in ganaches, you know, that is like, where's this bite? Wow, I never expected this bite. That is maybe a sprouted barley, for instance, you know? You'll have to see it to believe it. Nathan takes that to the nth degree. What begins under a microscope, he magnifies to bigger-than-life photo prints. A gallery of baking's best moments, the often unseen, innermost chemical processes of bread. So, photography is a really important part of any modernist cuisine uh, uh, subject. Uh, I mean, so much so we now have a gallery in Las Vegas where we sell pictures of food. Uh, so for this book, we had the challenge of how do you make bread look interesting when it's basically all the same color. It's all kind of shades of brown and white. Uh, dough is basically all white, white-ish, and uh, finished bread is brown and white. Um, and the answer is you bring lots of other things into the picture. Plus, you try to look at a much uh, higher resolution than you've looked before, a much uh, smaller scale. Um, so the thing most people don't realize is that bread, uh, when you look at it up close, really close, like with a, a microscope, the crumb is actually a translucent gel. Uh, it looks like shower glass. And that, that just freaks people out because they say, well, no, 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 but it's, the crumb is white and it's opaque. No, it's white for the same reason a cloud is white. So a cloud or a fog bank is white even though the cloud is made of lots of tiny droplets of water. And each tiny droplet is clear. In fact, when you drive through the fog, you can see the little droplets that hit your car when she are all clear droplets. But there's an interesting optical phenomenon that when you have a, a large number of clear things, each one of which scatters the light, it winds up scattering all of the light in a way that looks white. So one of the freaky things is as you zoom in on bread, it looks interesting, it looks more interesting, it looks more interesting, then it starts to look gross because it looks like bubbles in snot. Um, or, I mean, I was saying shower glass, and each, an individual flat piece looks like shower glass, but overall, it 
it is a very different look than people expect. Bread still has its critics, but so did Picasso. A co-founding Cubist, I know, I know, bread is balls and sticks. He's one of the preeminent painters of 20th century art. But as his work shifted from neoclassical to surrealism, people worried he'd never go back, though most of his later works combined elements of his earlier styles. Nikki Giusto of Central Milling sees that artistic side of baking. I like to equate knowing how to bake to uh, being like Picasso. So Picasso, you know, he understood and knew all the rules of figure drawing and form and color theory, and he knew all that stuff. But then he scrapped it, and he he wrote his own rule book. Um, And I think baking is exactly that like you go in, you, you need to understand some fundamentals. But as soon as you understand those fundamentals, you can start breaking all the rules. I've always preferred Matisse. But... <laughs> There's this book by John Berger called The Shape of a Pocket, a collection of essays which explore the relationship of art and artists. In this, he states... A pocket is formed when two or more people come together in agreement. The people coming together are the reader, me, and those the essays are about. And unexpectedly, our exchanges strengthen each of us in our conviction. Without creator, and the conductivity of heat in this case, bread is just an unmolded lump of dough. But by the hands of a baker, it becomes something more, and dare we say, a piece of art? At the very least, a think piece. This has been Episode 6 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Balls and Sticks, Shapes, Scoring, and Semiotics. In the next episode, Thermal Mass will heat things up with baking and ovens. Our theme music is by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Crust me, it's going to be hot. <laughs> <laughs>